You are listening to A Beautiful Mess, a new sermon series by Crosspoint Peachtree City. For more information, please visit our website at www.crosspointptc.com. Thanks for bringing the church into this building this morning. Uh, my name is Jamie, one of the pastors here. I'm glad that you guys are, are with us. Um, we are right in the heart of a, a series right now entitled A Beautiful Mess, and uh, if, you, if you own a television at all, you're probably well aware that uh, on the other side of the globe right now, uh, people have just experienced a waking nightmare uh, that the world is just not as it should be. We live in a fallen, broken world with hurt and pain and suffering and death. It's real, um, and yet we believe in a God who uh, can take what is meant for evil and orchestrate it for good. And, and so um, my prayer for the last couple of days uh, for those uh, over in Paris has been that many would be pointed to Jesus, that the church would be the church in that area of the world, and that God would uh, take what was orchestrated and meant for evil and to, to turn that for good. He's capable of doing that. He took the greatest evil in human history, namely the crucifixion, uh, of his son and and turn that into something beautiful and good. And that's what we celebrate uh, in this series as we talk about uh, our own messiness, uh, our own sin, uh, the fact that our stories are not as they should be. And yet um, God has uh, brought about redemption in the lives of many of us in this room uh, through the death of his son. And so we want to talk about that, and we are talking about that week in and week out as we plow our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. And this morning, we get to pick up where we left off last week as we uh, began to talk about at a very broad, general level, uh, this idea of spiritual gifts, the idea that we've all, if you're a Christian, we've all been uh, gifted in certain ways uh, to strengthen the others, uh, the faith of others in this particular church body and to reach people in the community. And this week we get to um, take that in, in a little bit different direction as we, we think about uh, our own giftings. And uh, Paul's going to press on us in a couple of different ways, uh, in a, a very intentional, strategic way. Uh, he's going to engage those of us who um, suffer in the body from the sickness of self-loathing. And he's also going to engage those of us who suffer from the sickness of self-sufficiency. And so uh, I believe that uh, as Paul's done throughout the course of this letter, he's just going to continue to unite the church uh, in the midst of great diversity. Uh, I talked about this last week a little bit, and it came up on our community group even this past week, um, that if we could um, shift our mindset when we, when we wake up on Sunday mornings and we ask ourselves the question, uh, do I want to put on clothes and go engage this thing called the church gathered? Uh, or during the week when it's uh, time for your community group to meet and you ask the question, do I want to engage that this week? Rather than thinking, what's in it for me and am I going to feel like I missed out if I'm not there? What would it look like if we approached it uh, with the mentality that if I'm not there, neither is my gift? That God's gifted me in a certain way and, and that we would then wake up with expectation with anticipation, um, that as we get out of bed every Sunday, we begin to, to think, what could God do? And what could he use me as an instrument of redemption to do in the lives of other people? It would be very different than uh, what we typically experience uh, now 
especially in our Bible Belt context where we all function oftentimes like car heaters. You know, we, it takes us about 15, 20 minutes to warm up at a heart level. And so I always wonder how James feels during song number one, like as everybody's just kind of in this lull and like we need, we need some sort of dousing of, uh, you know, uh, spiritual caffeine to our hearts to wake us up and get us going. And, and we all get frustrated with the car heater, right? Especially when you have to drive 10 minutes away and it takes your car 10 minutes to heat up. That's really annoying. And, um, and, and how, how much different would it be for us taking that word picture as a church if we woke up and roll, rolled out of bed, and not just on Sunday, but, but daily, we rolled out of bed anticipating God to do something expecting him to do something and and expecting that he's going to use us in order to make those things happen because he does use us as instruments of redemption. He loves to spend us for his glory. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. If you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll be in verses 12 through 31 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage If you don't own a Bible, take that as the church's gift to you. It's free. Uh, We don't want anything in return for it. We're just happy that you're exploring the truth claims of Christianity for yourself. So uh, let me pray this morning, and we'll dive in. We'll get to work. God, we thank you that you do make beautiful things out of the dust, uh, that you make beautiful things out of us, that you can make something beautiful out of tragedy, Um, on the other side of the world, we pray that you would do that even now, Jesus, that you would be glorified, that people would be drawn to your cross in the midst of suffering and pain and fear and agony and death. Um, We pray that you would do that in our lives this morning, that you would uh, continue to make uh, beautiful things out of the dust that we bring before you by your grace, uh, that you would um, orchestrate beauty in the midst of the mess of our lives, um, and that we would uh, experience a a greater joy as a result, and that you would receive all of the glory. We lift this up to you, uh, Father, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Let's dive in. Verse 12. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit, for the body does not consist of one member, but of many. Let me stop there. Um, Paul spends a great deal of time in this part of the letter using this uh, this metaphor of the church as a body, and, and this is brilliant. Um, Paul uh, has cultural reasons for doing that, based on the the socioeconomic um, layout of the city of Corinth, based on the political layout of the city of Corinth, they would have understood this idea of the community as a body coming together um, with a purpose behind it. And so Paul is, is culturally astute here. Um, but he also knew that the metaphor of the church as a body transcends culture, that uh, this metaphor speaks in all places at all times because every human being has a body. God created us with physical bodies, and so that means this morning that we'll have quite a few examples of how the human body works, and we'll be able to connect the dots to how that applies to the church. Um, Paul begins by saying that every human body consists of numerous body parts, and yet all those parts make up one single body. That's the church, he says. The church is one unified family made up of a diversity of members, and God's actually happy that it works that way. It's really weird, isn't it? I mean... 
other than Jesus, what would bring this group of people together under one roof? Nothing, right? I mean, Jesus has brought us together so that we all gather and make up this family, and yet what a great display of, of what the gospel is able to do in, in bringing people together as they've been reconciled to their, their God. It's a beautiful display of, of the way God works, that when you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit, Paul says, did a cleansing and empowering work in you. Verse 13, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Um, this is what water baptism is a symbol of. When, when we baptize in a few weeks, what we're doing is we're, um, we're symbolically depicting what's happened in, in the human heart, that, uh, that someone has been uh, brought to life, they've died with Christ and been raised to walk in newness of life, and now we, uh, we symbolically uh, put that on display for uh, the church and the world to see as a declaration of what the Holy Spirit has done in cleansing and empowering us. And Paul says we're, we're all also made to drink of one spirit in verse 13. That, that verb, made to drink, is really interesting. It's, it's a verb used um, to talk about the idea of irrigation. And so if you're a Christian, think of it this way. The Holy Spirit irrigates your heart, saturates your heart like uh, an irrigation system saturates a field. That's pretty sweet. When you think God's not at work in your life, just come back to that kind of word picture that, that he is uh, about saturating your life with his spirit. And the Holy Spirit, Paul says, is no respecter of persons. He indwells Jews and Greeks, slaves and free, male and female, poor and, and rich, that whatever previously separated you, you've been brought together by the one Holy Spirit. And Paul gets super progressive here. He, he, notice he doesn't say, I, I know some of you enjoy hunting and fishing and, and others of you guys don't, and look what he's brought together. He doesn't say, I know some of you like letting your baby cry it out, and others of you think that that's wrong, and look what he's brought together. And, and all of that matters, right? It, it, it actually makes, uh, makes us realize how petty we are when, when we are so divided over hobbies and parenting techniques. And yet Paul goes even further, and he says, no, Jesus actually brings together those who have been saved from their sin and knits them together with those who have been saved from their self-righteousness. Jesus brings together the haves and the have-nots. He's able to reconcile the greatest barriers that exist in the hearts of man. Paul's driving at the beautiful unifying power of the gospel and the spirit who indwells a diverse band of misfits who make up this body. And that's you and me. We're a diverse band of misfits, just like the disciples who have been brought together by the one Holy Spirit. And so Paul has a heart for this idea of unifying the body, bringing everyone together in the midst of great diversity under the banner of the gospel. And so he presses on a couple of sicknesses that he sees uh, in the body. And, and I mentioned those earlier, the sickness of self-loathing he's going to get at in verses 15 through 20. And then he's going to move into the sickness of self-sufficiency in verses 21 through 26. And in both of those, he's going to um, talk about what healing looks like. Uh, through a number of truths that, that can be spoken into these sicknesses. And so I, I think this is brilliant on Paul's part because we, we all have a tendency to err in one direction or the other, self-loathing or self-sufficiency and pride. And, and so he addresses both. Look at the first of these, the sickness of self-loathing. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, 
Where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. See, the sickness here is, I don't belong. I'm useless. The church doesn't need me. The gift that I have is expendable. It really doesn't matter that much. And Paul speaks words of healing into that. So if that's you, notice the the three statements of truth that Paul brings to bear in these particular verses. Number one, he says those feelings of uselessness don't align with reality. Verse 15, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, verse 16, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body that that we can say all day long we don't matter, and yet that doesn't necessarily align with reality. Paul says that oftentimes we feel emotions and they really need to be tested by what's real and true, that if you say I don't belong, I'm not needed, my gift is insignificant, that what Paul is saying, what God is saying is that what you're saying just isn't true. That regardless of what you say or feel, it doesn't make you any less a part of the body, and your gift absolutely matters. And so one way to respond to sin and unbelief is to align ourselves with with reality, to align our thinking with reality, with what's true. This is why the scriptures are so important. Um, The scriptures are God's words breathed out into print form for us. Nothing could align more so with reality. So when we come to the Bible and we look at it and we get to certain passages and we go, that seems a little idealistic to me, God. I'm not sure that, that uh, that's uh, realistic. Uh, the reality is that God breathed those words, and he's the one who designed the universe to be the way it is. He knows better than any of us. And so our prayer would then become, please help to align my heart with what is real, with what is true. And when the gap seems too big, help me to trust that your grace is sufficient and that you will narrow that gap so that what seems idealistic will become real in my heart. Paul says, if you feel like you're unimportant, it's just a lie. It's not true. You're valued. Every part of the body of Christ matters. Number two, he says, if we were all the same member, it would no longer be a body by definition. Verse 19, if all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. If we were all eyes, we'd be a pile of eyeballs. And that would be weird, right? If we were all toes, we would be a pile of toes. We would look like some weird creature in a Tim Burton movie at that point. But we certainly would would not be a body by definition. That what makes the church a body is the diversity of its members. So that the the idea is not that we uh, look at the gift that we think is most valuable and go, let's all be that. Because then the church wouldn't be a body by definition, the world is not impacted and the church is not strengthened um, by a pile of eyeballs, by a pile of, of toes. The world is impacted and strengthened uh, in terms of our faith through the diversity of its members. Every gift absolutely matters. And then thirdly, speaking into this sickness of self-loathing, he says every member ultimately is what he or she is because God sovereignly willed it. Verses 17 and 18, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. That 
God knows it would be ridiculous to create a pile of eyeballs. And so he, he put us in place the way he did to create a body. That when you say I'm useless, when you say what I bring to the body is, is insignificant, you're saying God blew it. That, that in some sense, you're saying God doesn't know how to build a church which is a crazy statement, right? None of us would wanna actually say that, but yet we communicate it when we, when we go into um, self-loathing mode as it pertains to the way he's gifted us when we're um, not content with that. This is ultimately an issue of contentment that Paul is driving at, that, that he's calling us to be content with the, the way God has not only designed us, but gifted us by the power of his Holy Spirit and to trust that he knows what he's doing. That, that he didn't blow it when he gifted you, that he has a unique plan for how he wants to spend you for his glory in this church family and in this community. And it's simply up to us to ask the question, how do you want to strengthen the faith of others using me, going back to, to last week? For others of us, that's not the sickness that we battle oftentimes, but rather we find ourselves falling into the other ditch, uh, the sickness of self-sufficiency, Paul says in verse 21, the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor, and our presentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That The sickness here is uh, you're less valuable than me. I don't need you. I, I can get by on my own resources, on my own gifts, the way God has designed me. Um, I'm okay as I am in my own world. And so I don't need to lean on the church. Um, and I certainly don't need what others bring to the table. I'm okay uh, as, as I am. And the healing that Paul speaks into this, again, three statements of truth. Number one, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are absolutely necessary. Verse 22, he says it. He says the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And notice that he doesn't say they actually are weaker. Um, when, when I was in elementary school, I think I've shared this story before, uh, I got into a, a kickball accident, which just sounds dumb having to tell people that that happened. But um, I was a very competitive kid, and uh, someone uh, kicked a pop fly, and it, it, it didn't have a lot of air under it. It was pretty close to the ground. And I tried to get up under it, and, and I, I, I came at the ground like this. And so both of my pinkies jammed into the dirt before any other part of my body hit the ground. And uh, I'm not sure if I broke my pinkies, fractured them, um, yanked them out of joint or what. But they had to be put in stents for a couple of months. And you can even see now. I'll show you after the service. It's really sad. They kind of they do like this curvy thing. Um, but until that happened, I didn't realize how important pinkies are. You know, like all of a sudden you're, you're trying to, to write for class and you're doing this, you know, with you, and try not to drag the stent because I'm left-handed and all the, um, the, you know, ink is kind of being drug along through my writing and it just became impossible. And we've all experienced this, right? You, you've experienced an injury and you're like, wow, I did not know that part of the body mattered that much and clearly Every part matters, that, that we need all the parts of our body, that it would be crazy uh, for us to just uh, uh, do away with one that is perfectly healthy and functioning, 
right? My last name is Vizzini. I have ties to the mafia. And so if I came up to you and I said, um, listen, I'm, I'm happy to chop off a perfectly healthy body part for you. You just pick the part and let me know and, and I'll, I'll whack it. Like I'll do, I'll do the mafia job for you. You'd look at me and you'd go, you out of your mind? Like, I don't want to lose a perfectly healthy body part. When you watch mobster movies and it goes into the torture scene where people start losing body parts, you go, that's disgusting, that's not healthy, that's a perfectly good part, we shouldn't do away with it. And yet, saying that someone else is expendable is the spiritual equivalent to chopping off your pinky. When you look at someone else in the body of Christ, and, and we, we rarely say it, right? We rarely look at someone and go, your gift is... I mean, it's kind of JV. Like, we, we don't do that, right? We just think it. We, we think that that person is expendable, and, and it's just not healthy for the body of Christ. Paul says every part of the body is indispensable. Secondly, he says those parts of the body that we think less honorable are worthy of greater honor. Verse 23, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. Some scholars, and I don't know if this is accurate or not, but I'm interested in this, this interpretation. Some scholars argue that the eye and the hand um, are metaphors for those in, uh, or the, excuse me, the eye and the head are metaphors for those in leadership roles, the seers and the thinkers in the church. Meanwhile, the hands and the feet represent the laborers, um, those who are the doers in the church, the servant-hearted. And the idea is that the eyes and the, the heads get more special treatment, they tend to, in the church. And, and it oftentimes goes to their head. Um, and yet Paul says every member of the body Matters. In fact, God bestows honor upon those that we categorize as less significant. Verse 24, God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. Um, we actually have a, a cultural example of this in this very room, right? Most of us probably would not, as we were um, putting together a list of body parts that are most significant, um, and, and starting with what we think would be the greatest, like we're going to die without this one, and we just kind of work our way down, uh, probably not high up on the list would be your fourth finger, right? And yet, most of uh, the most expensive objects that sit in this very room right now adorn the fourth finger of human beings um, throughout this space, that, that we bestow honor on what, what many would consider to be an insignificant part of the body, that we have something in our very culture that makes sense of this idea that we should honor the members of the body of Christ that our church subculture has communicated are less significant for whatever reason. And the same thing with respect to treating our unpresentable parts with modesty. For those who think the Bible's rated PG, it's not. Paul's talking about your reproductive organs here. There's just no way to interpret that differently to try to make the Bible PG, what he's saying is that these parts um, ultimately we know are reserved um, for those that we are in a, a marriage covenant with, that, that they're special, that it shows the significance of the parts of the body that no one sees. Think about that in terms of the church body, okay? This is a weird example, but um, James, James and I are eyebrows uh, in the body of Christ, 
Like you can't cover up an eyebrow. We're just here. We're on the stage. You see us. If you try to cover up an eyebrow, the best way you can do that is to slap a Band-Aid on it maybe. And then when you do that, everybody's just going to stare at it anyway because it looks weird. It's just there. It's in a visible place. But the reality is that some of the most critical things that happen in this church go unseen. There are prayer warriors in this church um, that, that no one sees. They're clothed in modesty. And, and we could talk about this list for a long time. There are uh, communion bread. It doesn't fall from heaven. You know that, right? Somebody has to go to Publix and buy that every single week so that we can participate in this beautiful sacrament that we call the Lord's Supper. What about signage out, out by the road and in the parking lots? That gets put out every single week, come rain or shine. And in recent history, it's been more so in the midst of monsoon weather that someone's gone out there to do that so that people, when they come, and this is their first visit, and they're already experiencing a little bit of nervousness, can actually find their way into this building a little easier. And that's just Sunday. We could go into Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, the ways that the body of Christ is served. Um, They didn't ask me to do this, but um, yesterday we had a partnership course, and Kevin and Leah Budd brought breakfast and and lunch. And um, I'm I'm convinced now that barbecuing should be in um, Paul's list of spiritual gifts because... um, the church was served so incredibly well by that, and it actually is. The spiritual gift of serving is on the list, and that's just under, under that gift is a particular gifting. But the church was served by that, and, and that, had I not shared that, it would have gone unseen to most of you in this congregation. But the body of Christ at its best oftentimes um, is unseen by the masses as we bring our gifts to bear in the lives of other, for others for the sake of strengthening the body for the sake of bettering uh, the, the body of Christ, that um, all gifts matter. And, and if no one else sees but God, God cares, according to verse 24. He cares deeply, and he honors those who give of themselves in these unseen ways. Um, so I think the question for us this week, uh, as a very practical application of, of this particular passage, would be this. Um, who can you honor this week? Who can you encourage this week? Think of someone whose gift or gifts aren't considered as important in our church subculture. And then write that person's name down and honor them this week very practically. Encourage them. Uh, Get in touch with them and and let them know what they mean to the body of Christ as they've engaged in your life and strengthened your faith. That would be a sweet exercise for this church if we all just engaged that this week um, and encourage unity in the midst of diversity, I think God would do some incredible things um, to bring uh, about a knitting together of our, of our very hearts. And then lastly, to respond to the sickness of self-sufficiency, Paul says that the way to fight it is with care. This is really interesting. Um, if you look at verse 25, this is what you would think verse 25 would say, that there, there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same unity with one another. Wouldn't you think that's what it would say? Hey, we don't want division, so what do we want? We want unity. But rather what he says to combat self-sufficiency and divisiveness in the church is that we should care for one another. How do you repent of self-sufficiency? Answer, you allow someone to care for you. Um, It's it's very difficult for me to do this. I don't know about you, but when, when someone offers to help me, I tend to have this tendency to go, oh, man, I'm good. I, I, I got this. We'll, we'll be okay. Um, and, and 
uh, would have been inclined if, if, uh, if Kevin and Leah had come up to me, I would have probably said, oh, man, we, we can get pizza. Like, yeah, that's all good. It's not a big deal, you know, and, and just kind of write that off. But the problem is, um, one, it communicates at a heart level for me that I don't know how to receive grace from others, um, which is a real indication of my relationship with God, if I'm honest, that, that it's a struggle to, to receive uh, grace from God. I'd rather earn it. I'd rather God love me because I did something well. And so at a heart level, that manifests itself horizontally with others by, by me then going, I'm good. I, I, we, don't need, we don't need help. We don't need to be served in that way. And, and so it robs me um, of an experience of God's grace, but it also robs the other person of an opportunity to exercise the gift that God's given them by the power of the Holy Spirit. So there's robbery happening on both sides. And the way we combat that is through actually opening ourselves up to being cared for by others in the church, um, even those that we might typically be inclined to go, man, that gift's not really that important. And all of a sudden it is in your life if you'll, if you'll receive it. Paul goes on in verse 26 as he talks about what happens as, as you uh, knit your hearts to one another. He says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. That you have this idea of uh, suffering, walking alongside one another in the hurts, in the pain, in the tragedy. This makes sense. If you go back to the metaphor of the body, when you experience a pounding headache, your entire body is affected, not just your temples, right? That every time a sharp pain hits your temple, your, your hands clench, your eyes wince, right? You, your ears dread the sound of noises that normally don't bother you. Another example, when your stomach is robbed of food, your entire body is affected, not just your stomach. Your, your entire body gets feeble. Your hands maybe start to shake. If you have an iron deficiency, your, your brain gets sleepy, gets tired, can't function the way uh, it does when uh, your body's fed well. Another example, when the appendix ruptures, a part of the body that we oftentimes don't ever think is even there. When it ruptures, it jeopardizes the life of the entire body. And in the same way, when someone in our church family suffers, we should, uh, we should feel that to some degree, that their hurt, their pain becomes our hurt, becomes our pain because God is knitting our hearts together. N.T. Wright in his commentary on this passage says this. He says, Paul wants every Christian in Corinth to value every other Christian and to care for him or her just like the hand comes to bandage the injured foot or the foot hurries to take the injured head to the hospital. That remains enormously important in every Christian fellowship, congregation, and church the world over. That, that we're not meant to run from the messiness and the pain and the hurt in other people's lives. We're meant to press into it and engage it and to experience a knitting together of our hearts with one another. But not just the suffering, the hurt, and the pain, the rejoicing, Paul says, that all rejoice together, that um, going back to the analogy of the body, when you hear your favorite song come up on your playlist, it's not just your ears that are affected, right? All of a sudden, your head starts bobbing, and your feet start moving, and, and your mouth curls up into a smile. You're like, yeah, that's my song. You know, Your whole body gets into that. Or how about a, a very tangible example from even last week? What did it look like for you the first day that the sun came out after um, being abysmal for weeks? Okay, for me, when the sun hit me, it didn't just affect my skin, but rather my eyes closed, my muscles relaxed. I gave one of those 
Oh, yes, sunshine. You know, like, like it affected my whole being when that happened, not just my skin that it hit. In the same way, when someone in our church family experiences joy, we're, we're meant to feel that, to experience that to some degree, that their joy becomes our joy because God is knitting our hearts together. Do you see how Paul's driving at the value of, of knowing one another and being known by one another? You, you can't um, experience the hurt of another uh, without knowing that hurt and without the other person sharing that hurt. And you can't experience the rejoicing with one another uh, if you're not engaged in the stories of other people in a way that you know what's worthy of rejoicing about. That the Christian life is not meant to be lived in isolation. That, that our joys and our pains are meant to be shared with others. This is an apologetic argument for the value of community this morning. Now, where does it come from? I think verse 27 is where you get to the gospel, the heart, the empowerment of all of this. Paul says, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. How did we become the body of Christ? Answer, everything that we've talked about this morning thus far, that Jesus humbled himself. He didn't look at his own interests, but rather he looked at the interests of others. He laid down his life so that we might have life and be brought into the body. He was dishonored for us and yet he has the highest honor bestowed upon him as king. We see it in Philippians chapter 2, which says this, very famous passage. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind, Paul says, among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he says, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that it is above every name, so that... At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That Jesus lived the sinless, perfect life that we couldn't live. We talk about it all the time. That he died our death in our place. He was punished in our place. He took the penalty for our sin. We've been served by Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And the Christian life is a call to respond to that gospel reality by serving others. A call to strengthen the faith of others, going back to last week, by using the gifts that God's given you. The Christian life is a call to humility. The last shall be first. That's the upside-down nature of the kingdom the way up is actually down. Paul's calling for us to look to Jesus and all of this as the empowerment for living this out. And then in verse 27, uh, he, he finishes out by um, building out this robust list of gifts for us. He says in verse 27, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And he asks, are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? That um, Paul lays out what appears to be a, a hierarchy here, right? A, a ranking of spiritual gifts. And so you might say, doesn't that undercut his argument, going back to last week, um, where it looks like he's against the ranking of of spiritual gifts, 
And, and you'll actually see when we get to chapter 14 that Paul is crystal clear that some gifts are greater than others. Um, he, he's going to unpack the idea that prophecy is more important than speaking in tongues based on its value in strengthening the faith of others in, in the church body and, and its evangelistic value, the, the missional value of that gift. So what's Paul doing? With, with the church in Corinth, what he's doing is he's deconstructing their value system. He's saying the way that you guys determine the value and the order of these giftings is based on uh, the wrong metric, that the most valuable gifts are not those that are the most eye-catching um, those that we would consider most miraculous to, to uh, human perspective, but rather the most valuable gifts are those that benefit others in the church as well as those who are not yet the church. And so he, he lays out these gifts. Uh, apostles, he says, in the narrow sense, we're talking eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Jesus who have been commissioned to, to plant churches, to found churches, and to write down the very words of God which we find in the binding of, of the scriptures. Um, we're talking guys like Paul and Peter and Matthew, that, that without these men, and obviously um, as instruments of God, so without God, of course, but without these men as instruments of, of God's using, we would not have Bibles and we would not have the founding of the New Testament church. And so obviously there's a, there's a prior, prioritization there. Prophets, we'll talk about that gift in a couple weeks. I'm going to continue to hit pause on that because we have plenty of space for that coming up. Teachers, those with an ability to explain scripture and apply it to the lives of others is a, a gift that strengthens the faith of others in the church rhythmically. Miracles and gifts of healing, we talked about that last week. Uh, helping, this is very generalized, which is great because it communicates that everyone really does have a spiritual gift by the power of the Holy Spirit. If you have nothing else, if you help people, that's a gift from God, that the human heart doesn't want to help others. Um, the human heart wants to be about self and, and the building of our own kingdoms and that God is at, at work in the hearts of his people when we want to actually serve others and, and help and care for others. Administrating, really interesting. Uh, for quite some time, I thought this spiritual gift meant that if you could uh, dominate an Excel spreadsheet, this was yours. Um, but, but it actually has nothing to do with secretarial work at all. Um, it, it actually means steering or piloting, setting the course of a ship at sea. So that this gift is actually the gift of vision casting, to, to be able to call a people to move in a particular direction. And then lastly, tongues. We'll talk about that gift in a couple of weeks as well. Paul says as we come out of this list, and, and the list that we saw earlier in the chapter, and, and other lists that you find in other parts of Scripture like Romans 12 uh, and other places, Paul says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way that Paul says you don't have all the spiritual gifts but you can and should desire additional spiritual gifts now I don't know about you but when I hear that my, my first inclination is to go back to verses like verse 11 and verse 18 and go wait a minute um, Paul says that these gifts are empowered by one in the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills like God God dictates he determines what gifts I'm going to have. Verse 18, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he, as he chose. God sovereignly places us in the body and gives us the gifts that he chooses that we should have. And so my initial thought is, wouldn't it be a slap in the face of his sovereignty to desire gifts that we don't currently have? How, how do you reconcile that? And, and this is where, as we close this morning, I think this is helpful. Um, John Piper's idea of dissatisfied contentment. He says this, he says, 
It is possible to long for spiritual gifts that we don't have without saying the ones we do have are useless. It is possible to seek a gift for tomorrow without calling into question the wisdom of God in giving us those we have today. He goes on to close out that statement saying, there is such a thing as dissatisfied contentment and learning to mingle contentment in the sovereign goodness of God with the dissatisfaction of holy yearnings and prayers is the key to a growing Christian life. That, that I'm not who I once was, and so I'm content with where, where God has me and the way he's gifted me and the way he's using me, but I'm not who I'm going to be either. That I'm a work in progress, and he will finish the good work that he began in me and bring it to completion in Christ Jesus, as Paul says. And so there is a both and there. Um, it, it's not dissatisfied um, because I lack contentment, but it's a dissatisfaction that comes alongside contentment to say, I love what I have of you, but I want more of you, God. And so Paul says, desire the higher gifts. And by that, again, he means the gifts that do more to build up the church. So it's desiring that God would gift you in more ways that allow you to be spent for the, the sake of other people. And I think that shifts the way we think about, God, I want, I want to be gifted in more ways. Is it for our own glory or is it so that we can then find ourselves in more moments of acts of service, spending ourselves um, for the sake of strengthening others in the body of Christ. And he closes out with talking about this more excellent way, which is coming next week as we talk about the necessity of love. So I'll hit pause on that for now. But let me leave you with this quote from David Garland in his commentary. He says this. He says, One person alone, no matter how gifted, cannot play a Beethoven symphony, act a Shakespearean tragedy, or compete against another team. The same is true in the church. It can never be a solo performance that God intends for us to bring our gifts together for, for the glory of God and the good of one another. And, and so the call as we leave this place this morning would be, let's wake up to tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and the next day with, with anticipation with an expectation that God is actually going to do something that day and that he might actually care to use us as instruments for his glory and our own joy to be a part of that. We're gonna take communion in just a moment. And again, this is just a sweet opportunity. It makes sense that communion, uh, the Lord's Supper and its institution would be a chapter earlier in 1 Corinthians because uh, what a sweet opportunity as we come and take the bread and dip it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. One, to be reminded that Jesus came to serve us and, and that actually empowers us serving others in the body of Christ and those who are not yet a part of the body of Christ. But but two, it's just a, a tangible, visible uh, opportunity to look around and go, wow, like, this is a body. This is a family. Uh, everyone doesn't get their own loaf. We break from the one loaf and we each take our piece and we dip it. And, and, and that's a unifying of us under the banner of the gospel. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.